0: Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A-Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozworski, and welcome to the show. Hello, and welcome back to regularly scheduled programming. Apologies for the hiatus, but now I know the answer to whether it's possible to keep up podcasting, all the while switching jobs, moving twice, and finishing a book manuscript. The answer is no. It is not possible. But I hope to be back with regularity once again, and I'm restarting this week with two great guests. First up, I speak with Angela McEwen about the ongoing NAFTA renegotiations and whether Trudeau's much vaunted progressive free trade holds water. Angela has been a guest on the show before and is an economist at the Canadian Labour Congress. And speaking of the Labour Congress, my second guest, David Bush, looks at the turmoil that led up to and has resulted from Unifor leaving Canada's House of Labour. Dave is an editor at rankandfile.ca and writes frequently and incisively on the Canadian labour movement. Here first though, is my conversation with Angela McEwen. Yeah. So to get us started, maybe just uh, bring us up to speed on on the state of these negotiations, or rather rather renegotiations over NAFTA. Maybe maybe quickly why they were reopened and kind of what's at stake, but uh, and also where where they're at currently.
1: Been several presidents that have run on a mandate of renegotiating NAFTA and modernizing it. It's been in the popular discourse in the United States for a while, um, but Trump seem to especially um, believe this discourse and in terms of the United States having been um, badly treated by a trade deal so he pulled out of the trans-pacific partnership mm-hmm. which was basically a deal written by and fought for United States corporations so um, it's it's really quite strange that the United States is now no longer in the trans-pacific partnership right. Um and, and he said he was going to get a good deal on NAFTA, focusing most of his rhetoric, of course, on, on Mexico and on trade imbalances in general. And his um, trade secretary that he's hired, he's got um, Ross and Lighthizer, they're also sort of along the same lines of where they want to encourage American jobs through protectionist trade measures. And so they want to, you know, continue to be able to buy American and and to bring um, investment back into the United States. So that's kind of the, where they're at in why they've opened up NAFTA. They want to rewrite the North American Trade Pact, hopefully to bring investment back from from Mexico especially, but, I mean, Canada as well, if they can.
0: Right. Yeah, and this, I mean, this sounds... As as you pointed out, you know it sounds like it's you know sits well with maybe some parts of the sort of corporate class in the U.S., but there's certainly large parts that are very invested in sort you know transnational supply chains, um, and and free, you know the free trade model as kind of their their model of of production and and distribution.
1: Oh, exactly. There are lots of large American corporations that are not happy with the the U.S. proposals under NAFTA and are quite upset. For example, uh, so we've just finished, where we're at right now, is we've just finished the sixth round of negotiations in Montreal and we'll be having the seventh round in Mexico City uh, at the end of uh, February. And then there might be one more round after that uh, in March before the Mexican elections and there'll have to be a pause uh, for a couple months, at least, um, maybe six months, for the Mexican auctions. So, anyway, at the sixth round of negotiations, it became apparent that uh, the United States is asking for no investor-state dispute settlement mechanism, hmm. uh, which is one thing that you know the major U.S. corporations really like to have uh, in in all of their trade deals that they've had in trade deals since the first NAFTA. Um, And Canada and Mexico have said, "Okay, well, we won't have it with you, but we'll negotiate a side agreement with each other so that we will continue to have (laughs) an investor state. This is
0: our progressive trade policy.
1: This is our progressive. trade. This is the state of our progressive trade policy. Um, Keeping in mind that we're going to be signing the the new comprehensive and progressive uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's progressive now because it's in the name. Uh, That's how these things work. Um, So that we're going to be signing that at the beginning of March. And that also has an investor state dispute settlement mechanism in it that Canada and Mexico are both party to. So there's actually no need for an additional one in NAFTA, except that the corporate class in all three nations just really likes to have these things around and probably hope that at some point, a new American administration would sign on to it as well.
0: Right. And and, I mean, this starts to get at the extent to which these free trade deals like NAFTA, like the old and the new TPP, you know, are not wholly or even in some cases at this, you know, by this point, mostly about trade, right? Tariffs are, as we know, know, tariffs are already very low. um, and, And these agreements run into, you know, hundreds of pages that, you know, there's not even that many T- tariffs, even if you were to write them out in sixteen point font, um, what's what's really what's what's driving them on the one hand, and I mean this is to, to some extent an an, an old debate, um, and what does this renegotiation now touch on any you know touch on any of the ideology sort of behind behind the free trade deals.
1: Well, absolutely. Uh, So, the United States, in the negotiations for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, had pushed forward a lot of ideas, as you say, that have nothing to do with tariffs or lowering tariffs or really actually even lowering barriers to trade, but instead are around um, protections for pharmaceutical companies, um, issues around um data privacy actually that they're trying to now write into international trade agreements issues around regulatory cooperation so there's already a regulatory cooperation council between Canada and the U.S. that's outside of any trade agreement but they kind of want to bring it into the trade agreement and try to make it more uh formal and give it some more I guess uh able to get more done with that and so regulatory cooperation on its own is obviously not necessarily a bad thing like okay so we made the tub of margarine the same size that's fine but it's often um, not that right we know that it's, it's often used to we have regulations and health and safety standards for a reason Um, And so it's used to try to bargain down to the lowest common denominator. And we use this as then competition, like we're the most business-friendly and and competitive uh, spot for foreign direct investment. So, yeah, what we see these, these agreements are becoming are really more setting international law and international standards for corporations that are now doing Um, global value chains and so that they can wherever they want to um, more easily move from one jurisdiction to another if they don't like what a government's doing you can sue a government if you don't like what they're doing, you can um, exploit labor and environmental low labor and environmental standards in in countries um, where there isn't necessarily the political will to do anything about that domestically.
0: And, and in contrast to that, I guess, I mean, we've seen a lot of talk from Trudeau and from the liberals and, and from various, you know, sectors that also in, in many ways not having that much to do with trade, but that they're trying to sort of put together and put forward a more, you know, use this opportunity to put forward a more progressive vision for these agreements. What, what does Trudeau mean? when he says, you know, progressive uh, free trade. And, you know, what would that actually look like? Is there a big gap between, uh, you know, between the the reality and and, and the rhetoric on this count?
1: Right. So if you look at um, so far as we can tell, this progressive environmental chapter in the NAFTA is based on the environmental chapter from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, And it's not mainstream throughout the the agreement. So you don't have, say, uh, limits on investor rights um, if we want to regulate in the public interest or regulate to be compliant with our commitments under the Paris Agreement, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it's progressive in that we're saying the right things, in that we're offering maybe to have some kind of committee struck so that we can have discussions across the three countries, but it's really informal. It really has no, um, it, do, it does nothing to mediate the harmful effects that we see coming from these um, free trade and investment agreements. It's kind of the bare minimum, right? Like, so we're going to talk about how, if you look at the gender chapter um, in Canada, the Canada-Chile trade agreement, it's like we're going to talk about the importance of women to the economy. (laughs) It's not... Ideally, (laughs) at
0: a round table of women CEOs. (laughs) And we're going to
1: have a round table of women (laughs) CEOs. And and we're going to talk about how we should, you know, maybe uh, support more women entrepreneurs. But we're not going to talk about how, you know, low-income women rely on public services. And so we should make sure that these are the types of public services that people have available to them. So we're not actually doing... We're not using a gender lens to analyze the impact of trade agreements. We're not, and the indigenous chapter again is about, you know, maybe maybe making sure that we have uh, quotas on apprenticeships for indigenous people that we can still do that. Mm-hmm. Mostly talking about economic outcomes, but not talking about the rights of um, specific First Nations to uh, right. not have a pipeline go through their territory. Right. So we're not talking about implementation. Of undrip, or what free and prior informed consent means, uh, we're talking about. You know, I don't know. I, I, it's not even clear actually what, um, what we are talking about because there are lots of real issues that you could get into. You imagine um, in international treaties talking about how an international treaty interacts with the treaties that we have with First Nation peoples in Canada, or how nations that cross. Canada-U.S. borders, how will those nations um, interact with the the two nations, Canada and the United States? So there's lots that you could be talking about there, and those conversations may be happening, um, but we don't know.
0: Right. Yeah, and they're not not happening at this table. Um,
1: No, exactly.
0: Historically, the labor movement in Canada and the U.S., generally the labor movement in in Mexico, of course, has been, you know opposed to these agreements, especially around the time when they were uh when they were being initially negotiated, both the FTA and then later NAFTA. How has that changed and, and specifically, you know, in an era of sort of Trumpism and and and, and, and the sort of ugly nationalism that, that is really rearing its head, how can we still talk about opposition to free free trade deals and which seems to be still necessary based on you know, based on what you've just Said and how you've outlined that these renegotiations are going and what the substance of them is. It seems that this opposition is is still extremely necessary, but how do we frame it in this new in this new context where some of the other opposition to you know whether whatever its source and how how sort of serious it is, but some of that opposition is also coming from um, from Trump and nationalists and things like that.
1: Yeah. So one of the the things that's been really interesting for me is that there have been efforts, especially among labor unions, but other groups as well, to create um, solidarity between the three nations. And apparently, this is what happened during the last round of NAFTA negotiations as well, that there were really uh, important conversations held between civil society groups. And so I went down to Mexico City, last spring, and there was a big gathering, a trinational gathering of civil society and labor, and a lot of the labor unions in Mexico are actually um, what they call yellow unions, or they're not, they're, they're protection contracts, they're not actually independent unions, so the, the independent union movement in Mexico is very small, mm-hmm. um, but vibrant, and, and they do a lot of great work. So we had this fantastic conversation about, yeah, how do we how do we distinguish ourselves from Trump? And it's harder than I thought it would be. But I think what we came to is um, an understanding that you have to talk about the solidarity of workers, you have to talk about how Mexican workers have been the ones worst impacted by the trade agreement. And so when we talk about the um, when we talk about the high labor standards, we're not talking about this in a protectionist way, we're not talking about this in a mexican stole our job kind of way, that we're saying actually Mexicans have lost out from this deal because their government has pursued an explicit uh, strategy of keeping wages low and keeping unions weak, and and that when we talk about it in that way, that we have to raise wages, not walls, is the, the kind of Cash race that came out of that meeting and i think that's really useful it's still i, I feel like when we talk to people in the media they want to reduce it back to well aren't you just protectionist like trump yeah 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 and so I, mean, really I think useful. a lot of
0: yeah and a lot of the and a lot of the discussions then comes down to just you know u.s versus i mean i think you raise a good point i think mexico is often forgotten in these discussions, yeah. at least the ones you see in the Canadian media, there's you know Canada versus versus the U.S. and this kind of stuff. But really, workers and working conditions in Mexico are you know have suffered among the most from from NAFTA. I don't know if you can go into a bit more of what you what you saw there and what you heard.
1: Yeah. So um, I mean, that what we were told is that actually, you know, unions in Mexico prior to NAFTA were maybe more vibrant. That the laws on the books were were quite good um, but that what we've seen is uh, well so first of all there was a a huge um, crisis in agriculture so corn farmers were actually wiped out and agricultural workers faced a lot of um, I mean they just they were completely swamped by subsidized US farmers which is unfortunate because that's not the intent of free trade um, but but mostly what we've seen is um, corporations relocating to just south of the US border and working with the government to have to actually have the state um, help keep unions out of these this manufacturing in order for wages to be, really low and to have that investment located there in Mexico. Um, And so we're in a position where the minimum wage in Mexico is less than a dollar a day where the state is um, explicitly trying to lock in the privatization um, and the neoliberal, a whole neoliberal agenda. They're trying to lock that in with, by signing these trade deals. So, the government had recently privatized a lot of energy workers and put hydro workers, you know, just out of a job by privatizing the the plants. And so these workers, amazing, had they come up with other worker owned co ops to try to keep their union members um, with employment while they were fighting the government in court over this privatization of of hydro and. Um, yeah, so you just see a lot of really creative responses and a lot of um, a lot of worker exploitation. And of course, when one of the rounds was happening in Mexico, there was a worker that was killed, uh, and he was uh, a union member that was organizing and and uh, agitating on behalf of the rights of workers. So it's it's really and there was a little bit of press attention. Jerry Diaz happened to be down there when that was happening, and he there was some attention like briefly paid to this but I don't think that uh, most Canadians have a full appreciation for just how um, even in a lot of American states the right to collective bargaining isn't there the right to freedom of association isn't there for most workers and that that um, that's actually kind of a subsidy right if the state is helping to keep those workers um, low wage in order for, to attract investment from corporations. That's actually a subsidy.
0: Yeah, and and I mean I think it also shows that in this in this world of free trade or, or in this world of you know de- deregulation, you still need the state. In fact, you still need a, a strong state, just one that's enforcing uh, things <laughs> that are you know not enforcing well, good labor standards, but one that's actively enforcing bad labor standards, right? Right, and, and all these other.
1: And so what kind of, like, what role do we want for this state? And I think people think, especially Canadians, think that, well, you know, the government's on our side. They're doing what's best for, you know, people and workers. And, and really the sole motivation in signing these treaties is just that they're good. In and of themselves, we think that they're good. We should be moving towards more liberalization and um, doing whatever it is that um, will encourage more business investment and the farther we go down that road the less we have anyone actually standing up and speaking for you know regular people what our interests are in this whole thing
0: that was economist Angela McEwen on Trump Trudeau and trade next David Bush explains the causes and consequences of the split in the Canadian labor movement First of all, maybe we could start with uh, with just giving us some context. So Unifor has left the Canadian Labour Congress. This is the largest private sector union in Canada. Uh, and without yet maybe going too much into the causes of the split, maybe you could just lay out what it is, uh, what's at stake, and what it sort of broadly means for the labour movement in Canada.
2: Yeah. So uh, on January 16th, the Unifor sent a letter. Uh, to the CLC saying that they're withdrawing from the Canadian labor Congress or the house of labor. Uh, and what that means, the effects of that are that, that the union takes its dues, um, from the CLC structure, from the federation structure and from local labor council structure. Now, uh, and that amount of dues, the amount of money going to those three levels of, of labor bodies, uh, in the country is about 10 million dollars. So uh, that can actually be very uh, crippling for parts of the labor movement especially at the local and federation level to see those Jews uh, come out. And it also means that a formal split in the labor movement means that it's possible Unifor and what they are doing now is raiding uh, unions i.e. trying to sign up uh, union members to Unifor who are already uh, union members of existing uh, CLC union. And so this is a, uh, a problem because I think it di- um, diverts resources into going after and organizing unorganized workers, and it pits um, unions against each other in terms of where they're putting their resources is to defend their members uh, from raids uh, it also splits formal or possibly splits formal coalition work. Um, we've seen this before when OPSU left uh, the OFL, the Ontario Federation of Labor. I remember going to, you know, uh, an OFL rally uh, against the Liberals. And then on the same day at a different time in a different place, there was an OPSU rally against the Liberals. And so this this is a problem. Um And it also, I think, creates a culture uh, and uh, within labor of really focusing on on these internal battles rather than on the broader political uh, scene out there in terms of this came on the heels on January 19th. There was a uh, nationwide day in support of Tim Horton's workers, and a couple of days before that, we're seeing this giant split in labor. We also have an upcoming election in Ontario, which uh, this could really um, divide and weaken the labor movement's response to a possible Tory majority government here. And so these are all potential issues that are going on. And some of this background, uh, you know, some of it's very specific about the nature of the CLC constitution, but it has a longer history, which is, um, you know, some of it's politics about whether the Canadian auto workers, who used to be part of Unifor, are like became part of Unifor, uh, backed strategic voting, whereas some other CLC affiliate unions had uh, longstanding policies of supporting the NDP. Um, but also questions of rating the idea of what is the role, what is the place of international unions in uh, the Canadian context. Uh, And should, you know, within the CAW, there is a sort of outlook amongst some layers of the leadership that those unions really should just be part of the Canadian auto workers or what is now Unifor. And there's been longstanding divisions and raids uh, that have plagued the House of Labour. In Quebec, it's a different scenario. So I'm really talking about um, outside of Quebec in Canada.
0: Right. So maybe I'll take some of those issues in turn. I don't want to get too caught up. I think you're right that the really both interesting and really consequential bit of this is is sort of the broader political context and what this, you know, what this means for Labour's strategy going forward both in terms of organizing in the workplace uh and having and impact politically and, and, you know, and organizing members politically. Um, but I do want to get back to that first uh, point about uh, about rating, um, and specifically the CLC constitution. And, you know, again, without getting into sort of the minutia, uh, the formal kind of reason for this split has been uh, what's called, you know, Article 4 of the CLC constitution, which is supposed to kind of adjudicate uh, rating and it's been the reason, you know, behind not just this split but even previous splits. Maybe you could go into a bit about what this article is and what what its role is sort of within within the House of Labour and what the concrete uh, sort of reasons for uniform you know, leaving are around it this time.
2: Yeah. So, Article Four, um, the history of it, it comes in place in two thousand two. Uh, And it is an article in the CLC Constitution that governs disputes. And one of the aspects, Article 4.9, the Section 4.9 of the Constitution, specifically deals with with raiding, right? And raiding is when a union goes and poaches or takes and organizes already existing union members of another uh, union that is affiliated to the same larger body, the CLC. And so this came about in 2002 because through the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, the CAW, the Canadian Auto Workers, became part of Unifor, engaged uh, in raids on the uh, Service Employees International Union in the healthcare sector in southwestern Ontario. Uh, and this caused a major um, sort of crisis in labor to the point where um, the CAW, the Canadian Auto Workers, were sanctioned by the CLC. Uh, And this sanction basically kind of uh, caused a crisis and uh, that lasted for uh, 18 months or so. Um, It also came on the heels of the CAW engaging in raiding uh, of the uh, um, independent transit workers union in the 90s in Vancouver, who are now uh, uniform members. Um, and that's not to say that Unifor CAW is the only uh, affiliate that has engaged in rating. Rather, that this sort of caused this article to be uh, put into the Constitution. It was revised multiple times, 2008, 2011, 2014, 2017, uh, at all the different CLC const, uh, constitu- um, conventions. That article was revised. There has been different... Um, Points in which Nupce, which uh, you know includes the BCGU, which includes Opsu, uh, left the CLC in 2010 for a couple of weeks over this issue of rating and uh, you know the use or misuse of Article Four. Now, Article 4.9, I just want to say, basically governs the ability for union members to appeal to the Canadian Labour Congress to say. My union, for whatever reason, is not working for me, and I want to leave, or I want to address this problem. And so the way it's formally enacted is that a group of union members petitions the CLC, and this is a, uh, uh, once that is started, that petition process It's governed by the CLC, and they review it, and they try to resolve that dispute if, um like internally within the union, but then they also, if that doesn't happen, they can become a direct chartered local, they could be switch unions, etc. It's mediated through the CLC, and it's a confidential process. And it has been used over the years uh, fairly successfully, although it does have lots of problems and issues. Um, I'd say a moderately successful uh, part of the Constitution that has allowed, uh, you know, the CLC to avoid a lot of these rating crises, which basically means an internal war between affiliates. In 2017, uh, there was an issue arising in the Amalgamated Transit Union uh, in Toronto, Local 113, which has about 10,000 plus members here. And which the president had uh, initiated a article uh, um, justification process, or Article Four Nine, wrote to the CLC, said, "Here's all the reasons. I would like to initiate this process, possibly look to change unions or whatever." Uh, he was then uh, that local was then trustee, right? And then. Uh, you know, he was organizing, Bob Kinnear, President Bob Kinnear was organizing with Unifor, who came out of the woodworks, did a press conference for him, it turned out they were paying for his lawyers, paying for ads in the papers, saying, how dare a big, bad American union come down uh, and, you know, take away democracy, this is an American invasion, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it turned out, though, Uh, after some initial digging and reporting that we did at rankandfile.ca was that he had been in communication before uh, the Article 4.9 justification went in with Unifor, Uh, his lawyers were being paid by Unifor, and that there had been, it looked like, a fairly established plot, uh, a lash-up between the two levels of bureaucracy at Unifor and Kinnear to um, do some dirty deeds with the ATU. And uh, this caused a pretty big crisis in the CLC because it looked initially like the CLC was taking Bob Kinnear's side. And, uh, you know, you had Chris McDonald, uh, who was an executive assistant uh, to Hassan Youssef, coming in the paper and basically agreeing with Kinnear and Unifor in the days right after. Uh, He was a former Unifor staffer who, after that crisis went, he went back to Unifor. And it looked like there was like some backdoor dirt being going on uh, in, you know, the high levels of the labor bureaucracy. And it was all covered up by, uh, I think, a language and a rhetoric around democracy and nationalism that I think served to muddy the waters of what was really happening. And it turned out that no that Bob Kinnear had never consulted his executive board, his elect- elected executive board, that Bob Kinnear had never consulted his members or had any open debate about leaving or initiating a justification process. Um, and he did it as an individual, but not with a group of workers, which is actually what explicitly it says in the Constitution. This was then sort of went through some court Uh, like a court case and then uh, sort of court case and then also there was a uh, CLC investigation that was cut short that caused all sorts of rancor between affiliates who were very upset with the actions of Unifor who looked clearly like they were violating another section of Article 4 which is Article 4.5a which is you don't interfere in other unions' internal business And so they're clearly violating that. And other unions were very upset. Wrote all sorts of mean letters to each other. And then uh, that the uh, the CLC had their convention in May. There was a sort of an agreement that to re again rewrite sections of uh, Article Four um, and like strike a committee to do so. And Unifor was excluded from that. And then this was the, quote, formal stated reason why Unifor can no longer be in the House of Labor, because it looked like uh, that they were not, they were excluded from that and that they, CLC was, you know, taking sides with the big, bad American unions and not standing up for Canadian workers. Yeah. And
0: I mean, I I think that in a more general sense, Unifor is kind of putting forward this kind of self-determination of national Canadian unions as a, you know, major political principle behind its decision. Um, and, I mean, I think as you and others have sort of, in my view, rightly pointed out, you know, that this perhaps shouldn't be such a major principle. You know, what what's your take on this and on, you know, again, moving outside the sort of minutiae on, on to, you know, drawing these kinds of sharp divisions along national lines, it's, especially at the time when Canada sits, you know, within networks of international supply chains on a continental level, but even on a global level, um, and what these kinds of arguments do within the labor movement, and they're kind of, you know, they're... they're danger if they're misused.
2: Right, and I think... W- so I would say that those arguments are trying to evoke uh, old debates in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s about the uh, self-determination of Canadian unions uh, or Canadian locals in international unions. And there's a whole long tradition that is trying to tie itself to However, what I think, uh, you know, this is sort of a, a hollowed-out husk uh, or like a veneer, a thin veneer over a nothingness. That is really what that argument is about. Because uh, at the there is no uh, like defense of um, democracy going on here, or defense of sort of national determination. Right when you actually get down into the details of what's happening, and that argument, as presented by uh, Unifor. Or and you know what the CAW has done before, you know, talking about Canadian uh, Canadian jobs for Canadian workers, um, I think can be a very regressive and toxic frame to talk about building solidarity, both international solidarity and effective solidarity in Canada amongst workers to fight back concessions. And to me, I think the focus has to be less on where. A union office headquarter is headquarters are and more about the actual effective uh, practice of democracy. Now I'll give you an example. In the Teamsters, you can go uh, who are uh, you can go and you have one member, one vote, and every single worker uh, in Canada who's a Teamster member can vote for uh, Zuckerman or they can, you know. Turned out, vote for Hafa Junior. If you want, but you get that choice. Same thing with United Steelworkers. You get one member, one vote, and these are um, you get to vote you know along international lines, and they actually voted in a Canadian. Um, so, but you can't do that in uniform. So I think these, these sort of trying to draw these hard lines between saying Canadian unions are more democratic than international unions, I think doesn't, uh, you know, hold water. And I think more importantly, we have to get specifically that, yeah, sure, there's some international unions who aren't great, but there's also lots of Canadian unions who aren't great. Some international unions will use a trusteeship to shut down local democracy, sure, but so will Canadian unions it's there's no um no one has a monopoly on good practice w- because of where their union headquarters is located,
0: yeah, yeah, and I think that's been that's been clear historically, and it's hard to you know to just sort of focus on one one half of that more recently, there's been another case uh, of again an international union trusting a local. Uh, Unifor somehow being involved, uh, and you know that kind of coming to light, and that's uh, Unite Here Local 75, which is another big local. It's I think something like 8,000 hotel workers, uh, mostly in Toronto. What's what are some of the sort of similarities and, and some of the differences? I think some people are conflating these two things together, and I think you and again others have argued that there's that there's some important differences between these two cases, uh, but they do also follow a fairly similar pattern in terms of sort of Unifor's role as well.
2: Yeah, so uh, there's been a crisis in Unite Here Local 75, which is the largest Unite Here local in Canada, about 8,000 members, mostly hotel workers, but food service workers as well, um, where there's been a conflict between parts of the leadership and the international union and between different parts of the local leadership, all like different parts of the local elected leadership. And it's it's messy. There's been charges of, of racism, and sexism, um, allegations of uh, sexual misconduct, uh, uh, allegations of sexism against the international um, and I'm not necessarily going to weigh in on all the particulars, other than to say this has been a long crisis over a year and a half. And some members of the executive board want a trusteeship, others don't. And in the the international came down even against their supervisor's report, saying they don't want a trusteeship, um, and looked like they're going to uh, putting in the local in trusteeship and. Uh, part of the uh, leadership of that local left and joined Unifor and uh, hooked up with Unifor. And this explains the timing of why Unifor left. So this this idea that it was just solely about Article 4 doesn't hold any water. They left on June 15th or 16th uh, from the CLC. And there was a court, uh, like the trusteeship, uh, there was a court hearing on the 22nd of January, and 25 of the 50 hotels unite here had, were in an open period, meaning open for raiding, up until January 31st. So it was a now or never period, and that is why Unifor withdrew, uh, hooked up with parts of the local leadership, and uh, proceeded to raid um now some would say You've that's like
0: four hotels already or something like that
2: uh, yeah therefore there was a uh, two a bunch more voting i i don't know the results as of today um but in total uh about uh 12 or so went through a vote the count as of now is four of two um but anyways there was a significant time gap if they Unifor didn't withdraw and that raid didn't happen, there was no chance of picking up those, trying to pick up those 25 hotels. And so that explains some of the timing. The other important part about this in relation to Article 4 and why that argument holds almost no water is because no one at Unite here, Local 75, put in for an Article 4 uh, justification process. And so the idea that Article four is broken, even though last year 44, 45 claims got uh, worked out in Article four. Uh, that somehow it's broken now because this local is going under trusteeship by the international. Even though, but they'd never filed a uh, justification process. So there's a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of smoke um, and a lot of muddy waters about what's actually really happening here. And You know, and the hypocrisy is is fairly rife in the labor movement. You know, you have uh, Hassan Youssef, who I think was probably didn't respond great in the ATU crisis initially, um, and now sort of, you know, has a fairly strong letter against Unifor and its hypocrisy, while also he's a Unifor member who then just took up a a membership of another union to stay president, even though he's telling... uh, Union members who are uniform members uh, who are elected positions in uh, at local labor councils that they have to leave. Um, while he becomes a DSAC member, now technically he can do that, but it just shows you that there's, um, you know, if we're looking for straight answers, uh, what's coming from the mouths of our leaders is not necessarily where we should turn to.
0: I want to get back to the to this sort of more generally and what you kind of left with in your in your introductory uh remarks and when you set the stage I think that was very effective. Uh way of doing it is 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 looking, you know, at what this means to the labor movement as an organizing force and what it means also just at the local uh at the local level. I mean, it's you know, it's easy and it's probably, you know, somewhat, you know, spitting into the wind to say what should happen, you know, the leaders of the labor movement should just get their shit together and uh and whatever and let's you know let let's sort this out um but i but i won't ask you so i won't ask you about that basically but but i think the more interesting question is and more useful one is how union members and local activists should orient to this conflict because it looks like it is going to you know it's not a two week thing uh it looks like it is dragging on and it might it might take quite some time to resolve and like you pointed out there's big you know uh financial Ramifications that impact on uh, both how uh, local, you know, federations and uh, and labor councils work, and also just the capacity for uh, for unions and activists to to pursue the strategies that they want on the ground. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the question is just, you know, how? What? What's the? How should? How should union members and local activists orient to this conflict?
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's easy to get wrapped up into the palace politics, the, you know, sort of backroom dealings and intrigue and the like idiocy and hypocrisy of the labor leadership, right? But I don't know if that's something that uh regular rank and file members should be focused on. I think that we should be informed about what's happening, we should understand hypocritical actions, but we should also not mirror or not regurgitate the arguments that are coming on down high from in our union movement, which is like we shouldn't be drawing lines in the sand at the local level based on sort of disagreements at the top, okay? So that means saying, you know, uniform activists, if you're not a uniform activist, uh, you should not be saying all uniform activists are bad people. Like these are people that we all work with, right? Same, same goes. If you're in Unifor, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be approaching, you know, people in international unions and saying, you know, they're bad or they're chattel or whatever, right? And so those are ways in which we sh- shouldn't be behaving, right? We should be building the solidarity at the bottom. And so some labor councils are passing motions, uh, you know, at their label council to seat Unifor delegates. But they're doing this in conjunction with also saying we're passing a motion against raiding. And what this is, is is, is a form of solidarity that goes both ways. It's not just about saying we're going to seat Unifor delegates, but saying to Unifor delegates, hey, we're saying this to our own leadership. Now it's your turn to say you're against raiding to your leadership. Right? it's a it's a two-way street this solidarity and it's about saying we want to get back to the business of building effective uh, and fighting labor movement just at a time where we have real opportunities to seize on the like fight for 15 and fairness and fight for minimum wage and we have real opportunity with the Tim Hortons and we're facing some serious elections going forward that we don't want to be divided and in Ontario we just have Uh, you know, coming into effect a whole series of labor laws that actually make it easier for people to be organizing. And we're not taking advantage of that. Unifor last year in their organizing department organized something like 3,000 workers for a uh, 300,000-member union. That's really, really small. And now, and that lays the basis of why exactly they're doing what they're doing right now. They actually think it's easier to go around and poach some members from existing unions because they got burned at Magna, they haven't made the inroads into Toyota, uh, and so they're going and doing this. And this is not a healthy or effective response in the long term to what the labor movement should do uh, or respond to the challenges it's facing. We have real opportunities and we need to seize them, and local activists need to insist upon that. Um, So I think those are the kinds of things that, uh, you know, we need to focus focus on at the uh, local level. While also being clear that we understand the Constitution. We understand that when Unifor says we're going to remain affiliated to uh, Labor Council or to the Federation of Labor, well, like, technically that's a lie. We all know that's a lie. That doesn't mean that we don't build formal solidarity where we can and we don't build informal solidarity. If, for instance, the CLC structures dictate ultimately that people should not be seated and they'll come down hard on labor councils, uh, we still try to invite people in the room. You still try to build the informal networks. You act as if or like the movement you want to be. And that is the most important thing. Right? That we behave uh, and act together as the movement we want to be.
0: That was writer and editor David Bush of rankandfile.ca. That's all for today. Talk to you again soon.